The Baptist and the Buddhist, identical twin brothers with two vastly different faiths. Join them as they explore their respective religions and how they differ and how they relate. Same DNA, different religions. Hey everybody, this is The Baptist and the Buddhist with Mark and Brian and this and is Aster and Aster the cat. Yay cats. This is episode three. Is that right? Episode three. Episode three. Um, You probably already heard in the intro, but we are just twins talking about our faiths and religions and our beliefs. And it's really just an an organic conversation just to uh, open up dialogue. And I'm excited for this episode. We were talking a little bit before the show, Brian. um, And... We, yes, were, we were we were just trying to figure out exactly what we wanted to do with the um, with this episode. So, um, to In me, what direction are we taking it? <laughs> right, exactly. And I think to me, um, as far as what I have down, is we're gonna be talking about sacred texts. That's the theme of the day. Um, I'm gonna talk about. We're obviously going to talk about the sacred texts in our beliefs. And I'm and going to talk about... Maybe a little show and tell too, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. I have some... I have one or maybe two prepared. I don't know. Um, to me, it's a very unique, very uh, a very integral part of my belief. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about what, what the sacred texts are. And I think before the show, you kind of nailed it on the head like... We're going to talk about what the sacred texts are and then what the sacred texts are. (laughs) Well, it's, it's such a fascinating question to ask because I think, I think some faiths might take it for granted that like you have sacred texts, of course. I mean, it's been a very reliable way of recording information for thousands of years. And I think, I think what I said, like, the people take it for granted because not every, like not every faith approaches sacred text the same way mm-hmm. in very surprising ways too i mean you have um i mean just off the top of my head you have like you know in islam you have the quran which is you know viewed as like the direct unchanged word of god um and i think some traditions even believe that the quran like existed in some form before creation and then you have Sikhs which you know they have the Guru Granth Sahib which they view as a as they they call it a guru it's their teacher it's it's the I can't remember the number of gurus there were but like the the last human one says oh yeah said every every guru after this you know there's going to be one guru after me and it's going to be this and it's the it's their sacred text and so it's a varied approach to sacred texts throughout throughout every religion they approach it differently even within each religion um i mean i'm gonna touch on this a little bit in mind but like in the realm of christianity you know, you even have the fringe, uh, some people call them cults or fringe denominations within Christianity that will um, apply the scripture differently. Like our sacred texts, some some take it literally, some take it um, as an allegory, um, some take it 
uh, with uh, how we can change the application to today. So different ways to apply it and and uh, and see it and and uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Approach it. Yeah. And I I already get a feeling that from from your perspective, like dispensation has a lot to do with how you approach <laughs> how you approach the Bible. Yeah, that's one facet of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I and I think I mean I had a really good refresher this Sunday in, in Sunday school. We had a teacher. He usually is out of out of town, upstate, um, and he he actually like. V- mainly views our services at our church online um and he started coming and teaching and he has such a like a fresh perspective on some things and uh, this week he just happened to be there teaching on this subject i'm like oh this is so this is so apropos to what we're talking about so i i had to refresh my notes with some things he said and i don't know how how much detail i'm gonna get but I guess let's let's jump into it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, okay. So I guess Baptist and the Buddhist, I guess the Baptist goes first, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so scripture. Um, I have it titled scripture, sacred text. What is... Scripture works too. What is scripture? Um, I don't even know where to start with this. <laughs> um, well, I guess let's... In Christianity in general... You, our sacred text is obviously the Bible. I have my copy right here. Um, that's really like all I can say for Christianity is we use the Bible because there's so many different beliefs and different Bibles and everything too. So in basics at a Baptist level, scripture, the Bible is God's words, God's word, um, there's usually four uh, four characteristics of the Bible that mainly Baptists. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say every Baptist, but in in my circles, the the Bible is revealed from God to man. It's inspired, and some people I I've had some conversations like with people before, and I just like. I just <clears throat> in I just insert the uh, the phrase that well God's word is inspired and they're like yeah I know they're inspired by by um, what God means to them and that's not what inspired means in a biblical sense inspired literally means like God breathed um, and uh, there's a third one uh, and I'll I'll kind of deep dive on these a little bit. The, the third one is that God's word is preserved, as He promised. Um, so it's unchanged. Um, it will last forever. His words will last forever. Um, Jesus says the the heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And then God's word is illuminated to the believers to to. Uh, to the Christians, to the, to the believers, uh, in Jesus. And, uh, let me deep dive on those four points. Um, God's word is revealed. It's from God to man. I think one of the main facilitators of anything dealing with scripture is always going to be 
the Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in another episode, what exactly is the Holy Spirit. But the facilitator to any working that Scripture, um, that, that Scripture, any, the revelation is through God's Spirit. And sometimes God intervenes directly with his finger or with his words um, to, to directly reveal his words to man. But in general, it, it's always a uh, it's always a working with through the spirit in some sort, um, and kind of hand in hand with th- the revelation of his word, like showing us his word. It's inspired, and what th- I said that it means God breathed. So the words are directly what God intends to be written in in his word. So if a, if if a man is writing was writing one of these books there's 66 books in this one book 66 books from Genesis to Revelation God's spirit moved that man to be able to write the words that he intended to reveal to man so he might like in in the case of like the apostle Paul uh, or you know even Nebuchadnezzar writing the book of Daniel, um, he he might use their personality and how they word things and how they see things, but it's always intent like God intends them to write it that way through His Spirit. God says, uh, or God God uh, says things in the Old Testament mainly through His prophets. I mean, really any any. Uh, any written scripture is basically a, a, a from a prophetic point of view, but I don't want to nail that down specifically. Um, spoken word, he, a lot of prophets spoke word, spoke God's words, um, especially before they had like a lot of written uh, scripture. Jesus, obviously, when he was on the earth, he spoke God's word and. I mean, and in a sense, the the Bible says that Jesus is God's word, is the word of God. Um, that's one of his titles or one of his names is the word. And but there were, the 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 really interesting thing about written scripture is that there were things that were revealed and inspired by God in the past that were not preserved in the in scripture. And the scripture talks about those things, like uh, certain prophets or prophecies mentioned in the scripture. We don't have their writing or that specific prophecy. Um, scripture talks about how Jesus performed miracles that were not recorded. It even talks about some revelations like in the book of the Revelation that we're not supposed to know what they are. Like the seven thunders. Like don't like he told John not to write those down. Like, hey, you're going to hear these seven thunders, whatever that is. We don't know what it is. But I'm not going to have you write it down because it's not for you to know right now. It's like, what in the world could that be? I guess just like, oh, come on. I want to know. Um, I think that kind of brings me to a point that I've heard in the past that like, how can you contain God in one book? Well, you can't because this isn't God in one book. This is what God intends us to know right now because there's a lot of things we don't know right now. But through here... Through, through the Bible, we can know what he wants us to know. So that's in, the inspiration of God. God's spirit moving men to write his words and to basically 
through that inspiration is revelation. Yeah. I, I, I like what you said about the like inspiration, like how people kind of misconstrue the meaning. Um, because it goes back to the etymology of inspiration of inspire. Yeah, exactly. Which is to breathe. You right. Know, exactly. So. Yeah. 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 And I think modern vernacular, you know, like, man, that inspires me. Like someone didn't literally breathe something into you or something, but in, yeah, in the biblical sense, like if God inspired the word, um, then it's literally like God's breath, which is the Holy spirit. Like the Holy spirit is synonymous with, with wind or breathing, um, from God. Like it's a, there's a lot of correlation between those two. Um, and it's, it's just, a it is very misconstrued a lot. And the person that the one conversation I had that I remember about that, um, you could tell that they were, they were just automatically thinking about, you know, modern vernacular. I'm like, okay, there's that, where that miscommunication is coming from. So definitions, (laughs) definitions. (laughs) The next point was the, the, uh, preservation of God, which is one thing I think, um, in my beliefs differ from a lot of other beliefs and maybe I'll touch on that a lot. Maybe not, but um, I'll deep dive on what I have. <laughs> so God uh, promised he would preserve his words. Um, and actually I'm going to see if I can find that verse real quick. And that's, it's in Psalm, the book of Psalms in Psalm 12. So in verse six, it says the word of the Lord the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in, f- in a furnace of earth purified seven times, which is very interesting. Um, like what is the seven times like tried in silver? I might not get into that today, but um, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Um, so he's he promised to preserve the words of God. And I guess I, I should probably define how I believe the, the Bible, um, from my perspective, um, it is, we take it literally. Like if any, if you could take anything literally in the Bible, take it literally. If obviously if it's a parable, it's a parable. Like usually Jesus says, this is a parable or he will explain that that was a parable. I just said, like, it's not literal. Come on. Um, but usually, usually if you can take it literally, take it literally. It makes some things really weird, but um, <laughs> I guess that's where the faith thing comes in sometimes. Um, <laughs> we believe that the word of God is inerrant because he inspired and revealed and preserved his words. And, um, and the Bible says that God cannot lie. He's not a liar. Um, then it is inerrant, um, because if he, if he promised to preserve his word, he wouldn't let it become, well, let me, let me rephrase that. He wouldn't let his preserved word become corrupt because he's not the author of confusion. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. Um, so we take it literally inerrantly and we believe it's an eternal um, it won't pass away. Jesus, I mentioned that passage already that Jesus said, my words will not pass away. Um, and the, the Bible says that not one jot or tittle will 
pass away. Um, and it, it's, it's part, basically it's part of God's being that it cannot be destroyed or pass away. It's a, it's an eternal thing. And it actually talks about, um, the Bible talks about certain things that God has like, has made it eternal in heaven, like how he, uh, how he hid, uh, that, that's the word I was looking for, how he hid some things in himself before he, before the foundations of the world, before he created anything. Like there are certain things that he had, and the word is eternal in heaven. Like before he even reaches man's ears or man's thoughts, like to get to that revelation, it's already settled in heaven. That's the, that's the word I was looking for. God's, uh, the Bible says that God God's word is forever settled in heaven. So like before it even reaches the pen or the paper, it's already settled that that is his word. Um, so it's almost like how you described it in, uh, like in Islam that, uh, they, that like the scripture is like, I don't want to say like already written or something like that, but like in, in the Bible, it does say that it does say it's forever settled in heaven. So so this is where like the are the beliefs that I have and uh, like the the main my main circle kind of gets a little like controversial because I believe the word of God the words of God are preserved through the King James Bible. There's I mean I've taken a class on the manuscript evidence and the different translations. It it's a lot of uh of different things to get into. So I won't get into it too much, but we believe that the King James Bible is the avenue that God is, has preserved his word through. The there was the Hebrew Bible, the the uh the Torah and you know the Pentateuch and the the basically the law, prophets and the uh the Psalms and everything in the Old Testament was already like basically uh, canonized, if you will, way before the New Testament was even written. Um, so, like, we don't really focus on that too much, even though that is part of the manuscript evidence or the translation issue or whatever you want to call it. But, uh, but with the mainly with the New Testament, with like different Greek uh, translations and um, manuscripts, there are like two separate lines of translations that you can follow through history um, and that you can kind of see where they came from um, in a very very general sense the the at least the New Testament portion of the King James Bible comes from uh, manuscripts that are Koine Greek which are like common common word Greek for the like basically common language back then where Every other translation uses a classical Greek translation, and it, that that comes from a different set of manuscripts. I won't get into this too much because there's a lot you can like that I can talk about and bring up. But um, in a very basic sense, to boil it down, the the not only the manuscripts and where it came from, but the process of the translation, we believe, was preserved was the way God preserved His Word. Um, so, and that's going to be pretty controversial, even among Baptists and grace believers alike. Um, very, I think we're, it's a pretty narrow, very unique um, belief in that, 
in in the scripture at least. And then probably the less controversial uh, facet of God's word is the illumination. And again, all these four points, like the way God works, God uh, deals his word with man is always through his spirit. And his spirit works with illumination and that like preservation and illumination are like the two steps that are still happening today because we still have a preserved copy of his words and we still have an illumination. What is that? What is illumination? It's just a, in a basic sense, it's God speaking to a believer because when someone becomes a believer, you know, when they get saved, when they trust their, their salvation in what Jesus did on the cross, the this, the Holy Spirit literally indwells in you. Um, it 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 uh, makes your the man's spirit alive again because man's spirit is is positionally dead, um, according to Second uh, Corinthians two is like the main chapter that I always go to about how the spirit works in man. And we will definitely talk about that later too in a different episode. But when we're, when we're saved, um, we, the spirit indwells in us and the, the, uh, the main purpose of that spirit indwelling on us is to be able to communicate with our spirit and to be able to understand the things of God. Um, second Corinthians two talks about like, what can man know besides what the spirit of man knows? You know, what what can man know? Man can't know the things of God because we don't have the spirit of God. But now that we, that believers are indwelled with the, whole, the Holy Spirit, we can know the things of God. Um, and we can know that, that the things of God is truth. So um, the main way the spirit works with us is, we read the Bible and the spirit that's indwelling in us that communicates with man's spirit helps us understand those things. And then like our communication to God is through prayer. Um, so, and that's a different topic too. So I mean, those are the four things, um, the four like fundamentals of the Bible, I guess. Um, I guess another one that you touched on earlier was like the dispensational view of the Bible. Like, I know you're going to talk about dispensations, Mark. <laughs> um, and that's, it, it's true. It's true. Uh, how should we study the Bible? Because illumination talks about how these words are communicated to us, but how do we study the word to be able to understand those things, uh, to be able to apply it to us. And I believe the Bible has to be rightly divided. Um, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, rightly dividing the word of truth. And um, I think I probably already mentioned this before, but like, what's the one way of looking or dividing the Bible usually? Do you know, Brian? I'm going to quiz you. Usually. Um, what's the well, main division in the Bible that like Christians Old Testament use? and New Testament. Exactly. Exactly. Um I don't believe that is the right the right way. And in fact, I think in one of my Bibles, I actually took the the page out that says end of the Old Testament, beginning of New Testament. Um, <laughs> um, but that is the most common way that most people see it. And, you know, it's not necessarily wrong. There was a 500-year gap between 
the last prophecy and the and the silence of God in between then until John the Baptist started prophesying. Um, but I the main the main division I see that I study is basically anything from from uh, like mid acts, and that's really just like telling us history the the history of the uh, of the transition from program to program. But really, anything from Romans to Philemon is directly to grace believers in this age. Like that is our mail that we're supposed to read. Um, anything from Genesis to Acts, um, that's largely the program dealing with prophecy, things foretold, things to come, um, ages, ages past and the thing, the ages to come. Those are all not directly dealing with us. So like, do I, do I make these sacrifices mentioned in Leviticus? Do I, do I, um, do I go to the, the, the priests in the temple as Jesus told one man that he healed, um, and confess his sins or tell him what happened to him? Uh, do I do all that stuff? No, I don't. I, I follow what, what Paul directly teaches us. And then like from Hebrews to revolution to revelation is like more end time stuff, tribulational stuff. Um, not directly applying to us it's all for us but it's not all to us if that makes sense like this whole book is for us to read like we're supposed to read every and study all of this but like where where do we find our our life charges like what are we supposed to do it's found in this thin section in the bible um those those what is it 13 epistles from paul um and that's how I believe the Bible is to be divided. There are different, like when you break it down, there are different commandments throughout the different ages and dispensations. And there are like seven or eight dispensations. Like God has different commandments for Adam when he was in the garden before the fall. He had different commandments to, um, to them after the fall through conscious, conscious, like you know right and wrong now you have different commandments um after noah's flood at the uh he gave them a charge to for human government on the world okay let's deal with human government like let's deal with man through human government like how you're supposed to live through human government and then he dealt with um with promise to the nation of israel um uh, through Abraham mainly, and then there's Moses and the law. He dealt with law, and then after law faded out, there was grace, and then in the future, there's going to be tribulation and a millennial kingdom, and then the dispensation of fullness of times and eternity. So different ways, uh, there's different commandments that don't apply to us that's in the Bible. I'm not going to build an altar or carry around a tabernacle through the wilderness, or build a temple and follow the laws, or make sure not to mix cloth. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna eat meat and cheese together. Um, I'm. I'm not gonna. I mean, I'm not gonna probably cook meat and milk, but um, 
It depends if on you how you do apply a curry that. or something. That's very true. I can't eat curry. That would be that would make me very sad. Um, different laws, different uh, different commandments, different times. The age of grace is where we're at now with Paul's letters directly to us. That's how I believe we are to approach the Bible and how we are, we are to study the Bible. And that's what the Bible means to me. And that's what the sac- our sacred texts are. There are other denominations that might have uh, another testament to it, other other scriptures, other prophets even, other priests, um, lots of different ways that they, that other denominations or other beliefs will see the word of God communicated to them. Um, but I believe that this is the only writing you need to know from God. And that's like really the only thing you need from God. I think, I think it's kind of also appropriate to say that because some people do believe that they receive messages from God and re- receive revelation from God. I don't believe that. I don't believe that in this age that that happens anymore. There are certain uh, passages that Paul talks about um, revelation being finished or closed or um, fulfilled um, and uh, that we are not to heed angels or prophets um, because, I mean, angels are, most angels are, that people communicate with are deceivers anyways. So revelation, as we, we say, revelation is closed. Um, the, the inspiration of God, God's words are done. It's already all written in the package and canonized really too. Um, and uh, it's all one big package put together. I hope that makes sense. Any any muddy areas or clarity that you need in any of that section? Oh, um, I don't know. I think I have like a pretty elementary grasp on like on that idea of dispensation. Um, so I don't know if I have any any. Mm, muddy areas there okay cool or in the four facets of the scripture like revelation inspiration preservation or illumination um i think the only question i really have is like for dealing with preservation because you said you like had taken like a class looking at the different like I don't know if you'd say evidences or something, but like if you could, if if a naysayer came along and said, oh, it, you know, the King James version isn't the only, you know, reputable version, um, what would be like your, like your one piece of like uh, proof or evidence or whatever you want to call it? Um, that's a really good to question. That's a really good question because I don't know if there's like one silver bullet in that conversation. Like, oh yeah, well, watch this. There, there have been some attempts, and I've seen some pretty cool demonstrations too. There, like, there was a video um, where this guy had he was invited to a Bible study, and like these guys were sitting around in the living room, and it's like, okay, guys, uh, let me read this passage, and says, uh. uh 
God is not the author of confusion. Okay, everyone go to Psalm 23 and we're going to recite this all together. Read from your Bible. It's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And like, as they finished the passage, it sounded like a jumbled mess. And you couldn't understand what anyone was saying because the whole room, everyone had a different like version of the Bible and it was all jumbled up and... um. Man, I I don't know. I there are so many things that I want to like, and there's this and there's this. I don't want to turn it into a uh, like, uh, like they're wrong because of this. They're wrong because of this. But like the way I see how the scriptures were translated, there's so many there's so many differences in a lot of the translations um, that change the meaning to things, even like changing the meaning to doctrines and um and even like it it changes a lot and even with like the manuscript evidence so like the the like what did where did these translations come from um there that those two lines i was talking about very basic in a very basic sense there's the classical and the the common greek like the classical in this in 2021 we have older manuscripts of the classical like one or two you know like five percent of the manuscripts we have is that old manuscript like this is older than any other manuscript we have like very old paper you know physically it's really old but 95 percent of the manuscripts we have is from the common greek and they're in the older one the very old one um some verses are missing or changed or are a little different but in the 95% of the common uh, the common lineage, even though we don't have a physical old, old manuscript, we have a ton of them that have derived from other manuscripts. And there are, like, you know, they could have been dated back to, you know, like when, when uh, John finished Revelation and people started copying it. Um, the scribes started copying it. Um, it could have come directly from that. Who knows? Um, or I mean, it probably did because that's how that that's how copying the the word goes. But um, we just don't have the physical actual copies in hand that were old, old. So like, okay, we have five percent of this really old stuff, but we have ninety five percent of this other stuff that came from somewhere. And why are these 95% that have very little differences scattered all over the, the Eastern world? Like, why are these discounted just because of the small percentage that has a phrase missing? And there are, there's tons of different things you could look at, like different uh, historic historical events or myths that like, oh yeah, they found that that those manuscripts in the trash can of like some really old like church in like Italy or something like and that's where those like different verses came from that are missing pieces um so like in when you approach it with manuscript evidence you kind of look at that's like one lesson there that like just because it's older doesn't necessarily mean it's more reliable and better and in some cases, like with that manuscript, people have used that for their own purposes. 
um, in different translations. And I, th I believe most, I, I believe every translation besides King James, maybe New King James, uses that older, less common manuscript line. So, I mean, that's just one thing I could bring up that, I mean, I don't, re I, I didn't really present any evidence or anything like that, but. Well, that's, that's very interesting. That's. Yeah. And then like, there's, there are so, there are so many things like I could, I mean, there are, there are books on this stuff, so I could write a book, but I'm probably not as capable of that as other people that have. And there are some lines of thinking that, uh, that the other uh, translations or versions, and they're not necessarily translations. Some of them are just um, uh, rewritten, like reworded. They necessarily didn't translate it from anything. They just took, you know, an older copy, like, you know, Westcott and Hort's book and just like reworded it to make more sense or something like that. Um, rephrasings or paraphrasings of the of so it would kind scripture. of be a, a different translation like translating it into more modern vernacular yeah i think that would more like technically more be like a paraphrase or like a rewording um something like that yeah yeah and, that, and then there's like the Lego Bible that's a comic book and everything. I don't, I don't even know what to call that. That would probably be a paraphrasing. But obviously, like yeah. the the King James that we use today isn't the 1611 King James. It is, but it isn't because it's been revised for modern text. Because, you know, the 1611 text was old, like not old English, but, you know, the the middle English kind of writings, you know, the F for the S and yeah. the different spellings for like shall has an E at the end of it and stuff. So like the, the, um, I think it was like 18 something, 1827 or something like that is like they revised or not revised, but they, uh, yeah, it was a revision of the 1611 King James that they just rewrote and respelled some words. Um, and then there's the whole 1611 translation, like everything that happened in that, like I could talk about that stuff too, but, um, as part of like, why do I believe the King James is like the preserved copy of the word of God? Um, but I don't want to get too detailed because that could take hours. <laughs> yeah. We could always pick up that conversation at a later date. Oh, yeah. If we yeah. run out of episode ideas or something. Sacred texts part two or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I appreciate your questions. What is, what's your text look like? <laughs> yeah, so in, so in Buddhism, there, so each, so the three main schools of Buddhism uh, have their own uh, texts, um, their own versions or translations uh and these texts are called the the three baskets um or in pali in the pali language it's tipitaka or in the sanskrit it's tripitaka and the the tipitaka is what you would consider the the buddhist scripture um it's a collection and i'll get into I'll get into the specifics, but, um, but before I say anything more, like 
I will speak mainly on the Pali canon, the, the Tipitaka in the Pali language, because I don't know almost anything about the what the Mahayana school uses or what the Vajrayana school uses. I know both. I actually don't know, but I know that the Mahayana school will use like uh, what I don't know if it derives from Sanskrit or if it's main if it's usually comes from. I'm guessing it comes from like some Sanskrit source or something um, for their canon, and the Vajrayana. I don't know if they use a Tibetan canon. Um, and I'm not even sure if the Mahayana is in Sanskrit, to be honest. See, I don't know anything about those. Uh, I know my main my main knowledge of the of the of the three baskets is the Pali Canon, which is what the Theravada school uses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, the Pali Canon is, I think, generally agreed upon as the earliest version. Um, or one of the earliest versions, certainly one of the, or one of the earliest surviving versions. I'm sure there are versions that came beforehand that are no longer in existence, but so, so I'm going to talk about the poly canon. Okay. So the poly canon, and I don't, I'm not like well-versed in the history of the poly canon, like, you know, it, how it's ended up in English today. But I know, like some of the earliest surviving uh, manuscripts they have are well from well after the time of the Buddha, like the eighth or ninth century. Um, and I think like the the earliest intact, complete version was from the eighteenth century, I believe. Hmm. Um, so very recent, uh, especially with the backdrop of the time of the Buddha, which was, you know, he lived around. 562 BC um and according to according to tradition about 30 years after his death at the first Buddhist council uh, I can't remember if it was Ananda or one of his other uh famous attendants um purportedly recited the whole canon at this council and early on in the in in the life of the Dhamma, it was very much an oral tradition. And I think you can, I think this kind of comes across as such when you read the, the suttas, because they're extremely, extremely repetitive. (laughs) And I will, I'll, I'll show you a little uh, later. Um, but it's there. They are very, very repetitive to the point that like the versions we have now are truncated, you know, like dot, 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 like, you know, what we just said in the last paragraph, because if they didn't truncate it, it would almost, it would be impossible to publish in single, not single volumes, but somewhat single volumes. And you'll see. So the poly canon, it's these three baskets and these three baskets, these sections um, are are really separated in three categories. I I always refer to them as vast categories because they are vast. They are <laughs> they are big. So um, it's each vast category per basket. 
Yes. Okay. So there's three categories. And one category is called the Vinaya Pitaka, or the Basket of Discipline, which sounds like a horrible punishment, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the basket I the, just think the, of Nicolas Cage in a wicker man. <laughs> <laughs> Not the bees. <laughs> uh, I've, I honestly haven't even seen that version of it. What? Um, but so the Vinaya Pitaka is it's the discipline. The the discipline, the Vinaya is are the, 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 the codes and precepts of the monastics. So the monks and nuns. So the Vinaya spells out all the all what the monastics must follow um and they usually do this with story kind of like it sets up how because the the monastic code wasn't just laid down like here it is it was it almost seems like it was an experimental like intentional community that the buddha was building um he's like okay we need a we need to form a community of people dedicated to the liberation from suffering and people are messy. So they went along and, you know, kind of said, oh, okay, this, we have to do this because we messed up, you know, like, um, so these stories are sometimes like how a rule came to be, um, and then within the Vinaya, there's, it's not just those stories. It's also like analysis and commentary on these, on these rules and precepts. And the and monks and nuns generally uh, adhere to around 230 precepts. So there's a lot, a lot of ground to cover. Um, and I personally haven't really looked into or read too much of the Vinaya mainly because I'm not a monastic, <laughs> but, um, I would be interested in reading into a little, a little bit more to see, you know, the flavor of that. The next basket, the other basket is a Sutta Pitaka, which I'm going to come back to because this is the one I'm going to talk about most. Okay. And these are, that's, this is the, the category of the, of the suttas, the discourses. These are the teachings of the Buddha. Um, and the third category is the Abhidhamma Pitaka, which is, kind of a, a deep analytical breakdown of of the materials within the teachings so this is like very dry analysis very not dry i shouldn't say dry but it's very methodical um and it kind of turns a lot of the teaching into like a psychology because like i mean the majority of the buddhist teachings can be viewed as a very ancient psychology uh, i mean hmm. These, I mean, these lists are just off the top of my head. There's like just sensation tone itself, uh, the feeling tone. This, how many sensations can you experience? There's 108 of them. And you can break that down in, as to how there's 108 of them. And so there's just this very deep kind of methodical analysis of the teachings and... A lot of the Abhidhamma is actually, I think, I've heard some monastics say it's like mainly kind of secondary uh, sources, like a lot of commentarial uh, 
uh, material there. So this isn't like it, it, it wouldn't be considered something like the Pitakas, which is like, oh, well, this is what the Buddha taught. Hmm. Uh, Abhidhamma is mainly uh, kind of commentarial study of the teachings. And I, you know, I haven't looked too much into that either. So I could be wrong on some respects with how I describe that, but uh, that's that's my knowledge of the Abhidhamma. And I know there's like also within the Abhidhamma, there's like there's a what could be translated as like a matrix, just how it, they break down all these different uh, phenomena. Uh, really, they classify. They classify dhammas, which dhammas is a, a term with very with very different, not different, but it's a very versatile term because we use it usually in in Buddha in Buddhism with the uh, from the context of the Buddha dhamma, the the the, the teachings of the Buddha. The dhamma can mean phenomena in general. Um, like, and it all, but it also means law, like a natural law. The way I view it is like the, you know, kind of like gravity is, uh, it's not a law set down by someone and said, don't break the law, but, but it's a kind of a description of how the natural world works. And Dhamma, I think can also be thought as like a natural law in that, in that way. Like this is. This is how things function. Um, and then the Buddha Dhamma is how is, you know, the, the phenomena, the, the, the natural law of awakening, really, if you, if you want to translate it like that, hmm. since Buddha means awakened. Right. Um, but so, so there's this matrix of breaking down different phenomena, like, categorizing phenomenon um and it is, so it, it can be it can get pretty in depth i think but um so the sutta pitaka this the, the second one i mentioned the 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 discourses the teachings um <clears throat> i think this kind of illustrates why it's so vast um so the sutta pitaka is made up of i, I believe five different uh uh Nikayas. Um, they're like volumes. And so there's, I'm just going to like list them off and kind of describe what, what they are. So there's the Diga Nikaya, which is the, the long discourses. These are generally discourses that are much longer, um, than the others. And I think this kind of, this kind of gives you a glimpse at the, the categorize or the organization of the Pseudopitaka and maybe of the Tipitaka in general, which is there, it. It's sometimes organized by length, like almost arbitrarily by length, hmm. and so you have the long discourses. And I think there's about thirty something different discourses in that one, in the Diganakaya, and then there's the Majjhimanakaya, uh, which is the middle length discourses, um, which I have a copy here that. I, show and tell time yeah how so like if you were to take like just the middle basket how big would that be um like just the pseudopitica yeah 
I actually recently heard that the Pseudopitica is about 18 times big, 18 times longer than the Bible. Wow. So it's That's crazy. It's vast. Yeah. So this is the, the Maj, uh, translation of the Majma Nikaya, the middle length discourses. And there's 172 suttas in here. Hmm. Um, and the thing I said about earlier about it being so repetitive, um, like you will have paragraphs where it will maybe list out a set of qualities pertaining to something. And then the next paragraph is another thing with the same list of qualities. Hmm. And then the next paragraph is another thing. And I think they realized this would take two, this would be just so big. So they, so they truncate it. So it's like, you know, the first paragraph might be the full paragraph. And then the second one will be, well, the, the next thing. And then instead of listing all the qualities, they'll just say the first quality, dot, 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 the last quality. So we know, okay, this is the whole list. Okay. Um, so the Majma Nikaya is middle length discourses. They're quite a bit shorter than the long discourses. And then you have um, like the Ngudara Nikaya, which is the numerical or numbered discourses, which is a very interesting way of organizing it, I think, because they go from 1 to 11 and each number, it's like a book. Um, each number has its own book. And the suttas within within those books, within each number, has a, a number of dhammas that equals that number. So I think I wrote a few examples down, actually. So um, in... In the in under fours, you might have a sutta that talks about the four types of deeds, or I think there's even one about the four types of poets. Um, and so it's sometimes it seems like it, it could almost arbitrarily be categorized in this way because, you know, I mean, for me, maybe I don't know, you know maybe there's a list of qualities that I'm trying to figure out and I don't know how many there are. Um, so there's, so Diganakaya, Majma Nikaya, the Angudara Nikaya, which is the numerical. And then there's the Sangyuda Nikaya, which is the, it's called the Connected Discourses. And this is, this is a copy of it. Um, and, this one might be the best organized, in my opinion, um, because it's called the Connected Discourses. And so, connected refers to the fact that the suttas are broken up into category. Um, so, there's, like, part one, it's the book with verses. And then, part two is the book of causation. So I, it's like a very, like a general kind of topic. What do these suttas pertain to? Well, these ones pertain to causation. Or part three is the book of the aggregates. So they deal with mainly the five aggregates. Uh, book of sense, the six sense bases, etc. 
and then there's the great book which I don't know um, so as you can as as you can see they're vast see these like these are two of the five um, yeah and and then there's the last one is the Kudaka Nikaya Kudaka Nikaya um which is a collection of verses and prose it's kind of a it seems like kind of a just a compilation of of other buddhist texts that didn't make the didn't make the other ones and this one um the the, the material varies quite a bit uh in what is in it um one of the ma- one of the most famous pieces of Buddhist literature or scripture comes from the Kudaka Nikaya, which is the Dhammapada, which is a like a book of verses. So it's just verses. Um, I think verses purportedly spoken by the Buddha. Um, <laughs> but you ha- you have other collections in this in this uh, Kudaka Nikaya. Like you have the Teragata and the Terigata, which are poems written respectively from monks and nuns who have gained enlightenment. Um, and then you have the Udana, which is another collection of suttas. And like one of the most, one of, you might even know this one uh, from the Udana uh, is a sutta of the blind men and the elephant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that comes from there. And then within this within this volume as well, there's the Jataka tales, which are tales from the Buddha's past lives. Usually he's like an animal or something, so it like really lends itself to like kid stories kind of, I think. Mm. Um, That's interesting. And there's just different a lot of different um different collections of suttas and, and verses within this one. So the the five the five nikayas within the sutta pitaka, and generally the suttas are are in story form. Um, sometimes they're not the, the most exciting stories. Sometimes it's a lot of times it's you know, and each I think almost every sutta begins with "Thus I have heard," which kind of gives another idea that this was a an oral tradition to begin with. Um, Thus I have heard, and now I'm telling you. Um, and it's usually, it usually deals with the Buddha in a place, um, and he gives a teaching either to someone who asks, or sometimes it's someone does something to, to, to spur him to give a teaching, or sometimes it's someone's inclination and the Buddha like catches on to their inclination. It's like, okay, here's a teaching for you. Um, so it's always, um... It's always kind of in a story form, and it's usually him telling telling someone. And a lot of the suttas are named after who he's telling these uh, these lessons to. Hmm. Um, and you know, sometimes there's action packed ones like Angula Mala, uh, the, yeah, the murderer. Um, sometimes they involve celestial beings. Sometimes it's just him telling a telling someone in a park something you know <laughs> so it varies a lot and there's a vast amount of information <laughs> and i think it goes back to the idea that um that you know the 
the Buddha, I guess in a way I've, and I've heard people refer to it as the Buddha's dispensation, um, of, you know, there's, you know, 84,000 ways to, to teach the Dhamma, uh, you know, to, to, to reach for someone to, for the Dhamma to reach someone, you know, like everyone's different. So there's these different approaches, different, even sometimes different like levels of, of understanding. Um, sometimes are really deep lessons on like not self, or sometimes it's just like good deeds, you know, mm. will reap good outcomes. And so you, the, the, the level of teaching also varies quite a bit as well. Hmm. Huh. Um, and I don't know if I have too much more on that. Um, I mean, you could spend like a lifetime studying this, many yeah, lifetimes very studying clearly this. Very clearly, it is a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it feels, it could feel a little overwhelming, but whenever I'm like uh, confused, I always, I always trace trace these teachings back to the fourth noble truth which is the the path the way to the cessation of suffering which is the eightfold path the noble eightfold path and that is the the structure of the practice of awakening hmm. and so everything i think everything you read can everything you hear can be traced back to fit somehow into the eightfold path and that's how, you know, I, I use it. I use the Eightfold Path kind of as a compass, you know, uh, exploring the suttas. But that's, that's interesting. I, I like how, um, like, you could spend many lifetimes, like, studying that. And, like, I mean, I've heard that just about the Bible itself. Like, you can spend your whole life studying it and you will never get everything. Um, and, I, I think, mean, I think there's a there's like a spiritual sense to that too in my circles, because we believe this book has a spirit about it. Like it's a living, it's like literally oh, like yeah. a spirit, like a, it's a living book and it's never like with the whole uh, process of illumination. Like if you come to a passage later, depending on like maybe your needs or your, uh, your, um, you, the depth you want to go into, maybe you'll find something new out of the one passage or something. That's not too unfamiliar. Um, cause, um, <clears throat> I think there's this, this kind of idea in Buddhism where, I mean, you know, you could be, you know, what we might call an uninstructed worldling, someone who hasn't experienced the Dhamma, hasn't heard these teachings, hasn't, you know, started down this path, like they hear one of these teachings and it gives them, you know, they, they take something away from it. And then as your practice deepens and, uh, you grow to understand it more, you can go back and read that and like see a different layer to it and have it make, have it, you know, a, a brand new fresh teaching, um, 
and it's i think it's designed that way uh you know i think most of the lessons can can be helpful can be beneficial on wherever you might be right yeah the the apostle paul says that um that like with new believers we are weaned on milk and as we grow more we are weaned off of that and we start eating the meat like so so like a new like let's say a new christian starts reading the bible like they can get some good stuff out of it you know some milk here and there but as they grow more and get more familiar with everything um they will start like chewing the meat and it's like way different than like you ever like i've uh, you know like the bible is way different than i could have ever expected coming into it like mm. this thing is kind of hard to understand and like it's too big for me to read but like now that i am where i'm at now it's like it's so easy to understand and I mean, the the compass I use is going back to Paul's epistles. Like, I don't understand what this is saying. Like, what what is this minor prophet saying? Like, how do I apply that to my life? Because it's obviously not a prophecy of my life. So, like, what does Paul have to say about that? Like, what mm. does Paul say about that? So, like, you, you can go back to your compass to be able to, like, what in the world is this even about? Like, let's go back to the compass and see, like, find our bearings again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting the whole weaning on on milk uh you know to wean wean yourself off of that and start eating eating the meat. Um it reminds me that there's like that some of the suttas are cuz the Buddha was, you know, born and raised in a Vedic tradition, um you know, Hindu Hmm. Uh, and so there's, um, in like classic Buddhist cosmology, there's like six different realms you could be born into. Um, there's like the hell realms, the hungry ghost realm, animal realm, humans, jealous gods, and then the gods. And they, all these realms are all impermanent, um, cause everything is, but, um, but some, some people, I think, especially approaching the Buddhist teachings in his time from that, like from that environment, the Buddha teaches um, these people this very introductory taste in the Dhamma of, well, you can be born into heavenly realms um, because it ties into like uh, the law of the causal law of. Uh, you know, the cause and effect, uh, it's called, you know, kama or karma. And so he teaches these things like, oh, well, like it's, if you want to be born in a heavenly realm, which is a perfectly okay goal, like these teachings can help you. And then like, you know, you get, you get introduced that and like some people like, okay, cool. That's great. Gonna go make merit and be able to be born in a heavenly realm. But it's like, that's not the goal though. Like the goal is total liberation from this cycle of rebirth uh, in heaven, heavenly realms or in the human realm. Like the being born into a better realm is not the goal at all. Hmm. And, but it uses that system uh, 
you know, he utilizes that system and maybe even that tra- that like kind of train of thought to touch into the deeper truth that he's getting at, which is you can, you know, the, the suffering, the unreliability is, there's an end to it. You can, like, you you can put an end to it and stop the, the cycle. Um, and so the the way the way he kind of introduces it to some people uh like you, there's suttas in these books that are like oh you know how to be born in a, a heavenly realm and it's like to some like to me and some other people it's like this doesn't seem like something the buddha would teach you know like where's the liberation from samsara and it's like but these are like baby step teachings i think hmm to and you know uh i think i mentioned in the last episode that the buddha like posits this kind of pascal's wager version of uh of buddhism in which he says he says you know if if there are if there's if if rebirth is real and kama is real and what we do right now you know will affect where we end up then this practice will teach you how to how to be born in a better in a better realm in a better life and ultimately it can help you realize the end of suffering mm. but if it's not you know if if there's no rebirth if there's no kama then it teaches you how to live a good life now hmm. um interesting but that that idea of being of of being born into heavenly realms is like is kind of that milk, you know, like right. is a, a a a palatable thing to give to the the people of his time, so that they might understand where he's coming from when he gets into deeper teachings. Yeah, I think that it can get very likened to like Paul's uh, teaching, how like okay, there's the gospel of the grace of God, like you know, like sit, you know everyone's a sinner and sinners are destined for hell, but there's a way out made from God. It's like, okay, cool. That's great. Like you're in, but like, that's not what it's all about though. Like there is way higher things that like the Bible talks about. And like, that's not the ultimate purpose. That's just like your purpose, but there's a greater purpose than that too. Um, and it like, that's the meat like it gets into the meat of the the stuff and like P- peter talks about in one of his epistles that he doesn't even understand what paul's talking about like the things he says is hard to say like the things that paul talks about is hard to say and i mean there's probably a little bit of like dispensational difference there because that wasn't peter's gospel like that's not his that's what not what peter was supposed to do um so like of course it was going to be hard for him because it was like brand new stuff and things he never even heard about and that stuff is meat i mean there's i there's a lot of things that a lot of people probably don't know even though we've been studying this for years like you know there's always going to be something new and something to ponder and think about and say well that's a good question um and just more bites of meat <laughs> Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's always good to go back to 
take a drink of milk every once in a while and wash <laughs> it down and calm down for a second. You know, I always love to go back to basics, just like listen to a Dhamma talk or read something about just about the Four Noble Truths or right. the Eightfold Path. And it's like, oh, clarity. Yeah, yes. exactly. This is it. Exactly. Yeah, like but, sometimes like, you know, my pastor, he is very in-depth and like he knows like he knows his stuff. So most of our like services we have, like it's a full on Bible study. Every once in a while, he'll go on to a very simple, like, like, you know, Bible school kind of sermon. Like, this is what I learned how to do in Bible school. And it's kind of refreshing. Like, that was kind of good to hear. Like, (laughs) I already knew everything he said, but that was really good to hear. And like, I think I know some people that don't want to go beyond that point. They're like, we just need to know, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Like that, that's all we need to know. Like, and they don't want to go beyond that. But to me, it's exciting to get into deeper and weird stuff. Like people will be like, what are you, what are you reading? That's weird. Yeah. I, I feel similarly. Like there's, there are people who don't really care to get deeper into the suttas and like, to like, to hear the, uh, to, to hear the deeper, like really getting in the, in, in the, getting in the mud. Um, sometimes it is, it's just, it's, it's good enough to hear the, like the four noble truths and, you know, have a basic understanding of the eightfold path. And, you know, that's, that's still progress. That's still, that's still a practice. Right. And I think it's like kind of one of those things, like don't forget your roots. Like, don't yeah. forget where you came from. Yeah. But a, a, a quote popped in my head uh, in this conversation. How you said, like, you know, you can study it for your whole life and, like, still find something new and, like, learn from it. And it reminds me of a quote from Houston Smith, the uh, the author who wrote, like, a great book on the world's religions. Um and he's just a brilliant, like, uh, religious studies guy. But he said about the Tao Te Ching, the book from Taoism, and it's like a thin, thin book. Like, I'm almost jealous that they get, like, a small book. But <laughs> it's like, he says, you can read it in 30 minutes or 30 years. Hmm. And... It's, I think that's applicable to most sacred texts. You know, there's like a face value to it. And then there's like a really like a deeper, a deeper spirit to it that you can really just delve into. I know we've, I've, I'm doing a, a sutta study with a group and we're studying the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses, which there's only 152 suttas in this one. Um, Versus like the Nguta Runakaya, which I think has like 9,000 suttas or something in it. Wow. But the, the, and so we're going one sutta a month. So it's going to take a while for this one. Uh, but like we, and I thought, how can we, how can we study one sutta every month? And when we got into it, it's like, oh my gosh, how, <laughs> like we, this, this one sutta alone could take us like a year. You know, like I've known, 
like my pastor would do things like a whole series, months and months of just on two words from the beginning of a passage. It's like, I really should move on, shouldn't I? <laughs> but yeah, it's like, I, yeah. it's like Gandalf says, like hobbits are really amazing creatures. Uh, like you can learn all that there is to know about them. Um, but like after years, they can still surprise you or whatever the, yeah. the cult was. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That just yeah. came to me. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, the sutta is only like a couple of pages long. Wow. And we, you know, spent the first hour of the sutta study on like the first paragraph. And it's like, we got to get through all this. <laughs> and then at the end, it's like, oh yeah, there's a book about the sutta. I'll send you guys a link. <laughs> it's like, there's a whole book on this. Wow. Yeah, I think I think it goes to show like the amount of books and commentary on like, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of commentary books just on like one book of the Bible. And it's like lining the shelves of bookstores and uh, preachers offices and stuff. And it's like, that's like, there's just so much to be said on one thing. Like, yeah, it's a never ending. It's a never ending, uh, venture. And I think that's probably where like, I know for for my beliefs for Christianity, like the books are central. Like that is like the key to our beliefs. So like we are gonna spend tons of time on it. Yeah, I think I don't know. There's a passage from the Dhammapada that I think is really relevant to this idea, this discussion because like because you can study and study and study and read and like learn all you can about the suttas. But what really, like, and yeah, that's the Dhamma, like, put into words. But the Dhamma is act, is also the practice. So if you don't practice it, then it's for nothing. And there's a, a there's two verses from the Dhammapada that immediately popped into mind. Um, he says, it says, A heedless man, though he utters much of the canon, but does not act accordingly, is like unto a cowherd who counts the cattle of others. He is not a sharer of the fruit of the monastic life. So it's like, it's like you can you can read as many as many of the suttas as much of the verses as you want, but if you're not practicing it, like you're just counting cattle in another person's herd. <laughs> and then the the second the next verse says like, you can read as little of the verses. But if you, if you, if you practice the Dhamma, then, you know, then you will, you will make progress. You will gain fruits of, of liberation. So, you know, if you don't put it into practice, there's, there's not going to be any, you know, beneficial outcome. Right. It's like, don't be an That's armchair so Buddhist, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, that's very like, true just don't know it you know do live it. it yeah exactly i think that's a great like finishing statement right there um I, I think that kind of boils our whole session down to that um it's not just a book for us to read it's not just words to read but it's words to live by it's a it's a way of life exactly yeah. exactly awesome I think that's going to wrap up this episode. 
on sacred texts. We could definitely do a second part later on years down the road or months down the road or whenever we run out of ideas, but there's so much we want to unpack in such a short amount of time. So, um, who knows what the next episode is going to be? We'll discuss that. It's (laughs) going to be surprise. (laughs) Wow. This might be our first surprise episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll figure something out before we record it. (laughs) Yeah, I I would hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Um, Please, um, if you have any questions, comments, if you want uh, us to uh, read anything, we might be able to read it on one of the episodes. Email us at baptistandbuddhist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Um, Like, subscribe, hit the notification bell on YouTube. We should also be on all podcast uh, yeah. apps everywhere. Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, you name it, we'll be there. Um, yeah. So uh, and if, if leave you, reviews if that's and stuff your, Yeah, if that's your main main form of consumption, then please leave a review. Yes. Uh, it helps with the visibility and reach of and this all the algorithms podcast. and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Stupid algorithms. Yeah, come on. I hate math. <laughs> I was watching some really weird math videos today, and it's just like, it just blows your mind. <sighs> yeah, well, this has been The Baptist and The Buddhist with Mark and Brian. And we will see you guys next time. See ya. Bye.